Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. For those of you who are regular here at Gateway, you know that we concluded our series on Pentecost last Sunday night, and it was on such a high note. And that sometimes when you've... um, finished a series like that, it's hard to know how to go forward. Um, We had actually planned to do a series on worship, but after the worship of the last couple of weeks, it feels a little bit like carrying coals to Newcastle or uh, preaching to the choir, as they say. Nevertheless, I looked at Acts chapter 2, and uh, in the light of the Pentecostal event, I, I, I was just looking into how they how they lived in the shadow of that high moment that they had. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, the message translation reads like this. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home, every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. And people in general like what they saw. So in the uh, shadow of that Pentecostal experience and event, they had a daily discipline of worship. And that emboldened me to carry on with our series on worship. I think their worship was a natural outflow of the Holy Spirit's touch upon their lives and that that worship kept the flame alive. So with that in mind, over the next few weeks, we're going to do a series, uh, a team teacher series uh, that we've called People of Worship. And the plan is to examine some of the people who were extremely Uh, outstanding examples of what it means to worship God and to see what you and I might glean from their experience as we seek to become a community of worshippers. So this evening I'm kicking the series off and we're looking at David, a paradigm of worship. As you look at the scriptures, uh, certain names jump readily to mind when you're considering particular topics. For example, if I was to talk about intercession, a couple of names that for me at least would readily spring to mind would be Moses, Samuel, and perhaps Abraham. If you mentioned the idea of suffering, there's one name that immediately heads the list, and that's, of course, Job. If you wanted to talk about missionary endeavor, it would be hard to go past Paul the Apostle. When it comes to the whole area of worship, the name that immediately comes to mind is King David. Few names are known better than his. He's mentioned some 800 times in the Old Testament and another 70 times at least in the New Testament. And we know David's story. We know that he excelled as a shepherd, a musician, a soldier, a king, and a poet. Yet the great characteristics that formed the foundation of all of those abilities was his consistent commitment to be a worshiper. David was a worshiper long before he ever became a public figure. He'd learned the ways of worship in the solitude of Bethlehem's back paddocks, keeping his father's sheep. He'd made a decision then to be a worshipper, and he implemented that choice whenever and wherever he had the opportunity to do it during his lifetime. So what I want to do tonight, very briefly, is point out a couple of features that that, um, stand out in David's life of worship, those things that we might learn from as we seek to be a community of worshippers. The first point I want to draw to your attention is that David worshipped passionately. He worshipped enthusiastically. 
It's been said that you can't light a fire in any other heart until it's burning in your own. And we know that to be true. If you think of your school days, the teachers that profoundly impressed us were nearly always the ones that were passionate about their subjects. And sometimes we caught their enthusiasm as much as we learned the specific material that they caught. They, their, their enthusiasm, their passion caused us to love the things that they loved. I think perhaps the worst kind of bankruptcy in the world is a person's loss of passion and loss of enthusiasm. And the most impoverished churches and individuals are the ones who have given up and surrendered their passion. I think there is much that goes by the name of worship in the generic church that is about as passionate as a pause between yawns. It's dull, it's lifeless, it's unemotional. As long as worship is a duty, it will never inspire. But on the other hand, where we are passionate about God, worship will never be a duty, but always a delight. When we're passionate about God, worship becomes a contagious expression that releases our emotions, that blesses our Creator, and that impacts people around about us. You know, Psalm 40, David's talking about worship and he says that God has put a new song in my mouth and many shall see it and fear God and trust God as a result of that song of worship that he's put in my heart. David was a passionate worshiper and he infected everybody that he came in contact with. David was a super spreader when it came to the issue of worship. Psalm 45 verse 1 says, My heart bubbles forth good news. His heart bubbled over like a steaming pot. The Hebrew has the idea of just gushing over. In Psalm 23, he talked about his cup running over. David loved God and it showed. And he could never be what some people called a secret disciple. His love for God was too deep. His affections on display far too much for him ever to be a hidden disciple. A person who cries, be glad in the Lord and rejoice you righteous, shout for joy all you that are upright in heart is not involved in some clandestine love relationship. Now I know that in our culture many people suspect over-enthusiastic worshippers has gone completely over the top and some of us, however, we tend to languish at the other end of the spectrum. Sometimes we talk of people having gone in off the deep end all the while fail, failing to realise the dangers implicit in going off the shallow end. The word enthusiasm comes from two words, entheos in the Greek. It's in and the Theos is God. In God, it literally means one who is in God or possessed by God. And true, genuine passion and enthusiasm comes from the awareness that God is dwelling directly within us. I wonder sometimes perhaps the dearth of enthusiasm and passion in modern Christianity is the fact that many Christians live their lives apart from God rather than living their lives as part of God. Don't make, don't make the mistake of assuming that passion is just about having a sunny disposition. It has nothing to do with natural temperament or personality. It comes out of an outgrowth of a continuous relationship with God. David praised God with intensity and passion. Moved to action would be a phrase that described David's praise and worship. He could only meditate on God's goodness for a period for, for a, a length of time before it simply erupted like a geyser. 
And so Psalm 69 verse nine says, passion for your house burns within me. David's worship was white hot. He says in Psalm 84, I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. You know, some people come to church and yeah, you know, it's my duty. I really should go there. So different from David. I faint, I long to be there. With my whole being, body and soul, I shout joyfully to the living God. Mike Brickle says this, he says, God designed the human soul to be passionate, abandoned and committed. This is the way the soul functions best. It sinks into restlessness, boredom, passivity and frustration if it has nothing worthy of giving itself to or sacrificing itself for. In other words, if we have nothing to die for, then we really have nothing to live for. God intended souls to be captured, consumed and enthralled with Jesus. David was no poker-faced religionist. He was an exuberant lover of God and there was nothing, absolutely nothing, that was half-hearted about him. If his way of expressing his love for God bothered others, then he let it be their problem. When Michael, his wife, objected to his passionate worship, he refused to be cowered by her mockery. He quickly learned that if he tried to limit his manifestation of love to the comfort level of other people, he would have to reduce himself to their level of love. And that level was far too low for David. So David worshipped passionately. Now the second one is very much tied into it, but David worshipped extravagantly. He exceeded the limits. The word uh, extravagant comes from the Latin and it means to go outside, to wander outside the limits or outside the boundary, to exceed or go beyond the bounds. Synonyms like lavish, unrestrained, exorbitant, fit David. Today we might add radical to the list. A New Testament Testament example of radical worship might well be Mary of Bethany who broke the alabaster box over the feet of Jesus. And I think perhaps later in the series we might come back and consider her. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of David's absolute extravagance when it came to the area of worship. The Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra has 134 members. It is the largest major symphony orchestra in the world. The next is the Berlin Philharmonic with 112. The next list of 10 orchestras has the Orchestra of Paris with 111, the Chicago Orchestra with 110, the New York Philharmonic with 109, the Cleveland Orchestra with 108, the London Royal Opera with 106 members, the Los Angeles Philharmonic with 105, the Philharmonic Orchestra of Boston with 98. If you combined all of those musicians, you would have a vast symphony of just over a thousand musicians, 1,097 to be exact. If you then added to their number the musicians of the 30 next largest orchestras, all of whom have at least 80 members, you'd have a massive symphony of 3,500 musicians. You would still come up hundreds short of the musicians that David employed in the temple to worship Uh, to to worship Yahweh. He had well over 4,000 musicians. He was lavish in his worship and he cultivated lavish worship in others as well. 
Another example of David's extravagance is when he moved the ark from the house of Obededim, where it had rested for a considerable period, to Jerusalem. The scripture is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and it's one that you know well for at least one aspect of David's life. It goes like this. It was told King David, saying, The Lord blessed the house of Obededim and all that pertained unto him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obededim into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they bare the ark of the Lord and had gone six paces, they sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with the little ephod. Now we all know about the occasion when David dance, but we tend to overlook the the journey that they took. The message translation says, uh, David went and bought the chest of God up from the house of Obedidim to the city of David, celebrating extravagantly all the way with frequent sacrifices and choice bulls. As I say, you kind of read that and you tend to read over it fairly quickly. The distance between Obedidim's house and Jerusalem is probably around nine kilometers, possibly as many as 16. That passage tells us that every six paces, David stopped to offer sacrifice. Let's do a little exercise in mathematics. Average step, about 0.6 of a meter. So every six steps, you'd go 3.9 meters. Take 0.3 of a meter for a tall Levite. Stopping every six paces for nine kilometers requires an amazing 2,430 stops. That's 270 stops every kilometer. That's 2,430 oxen and an equal number of calves that are sacrificed as David is moving toward Jerusalem. And as I said this morning, if anybody doesn't think that's excessive and expensive, I'd like to make your acquaintance straight after the service because I'd like to introduce you to our building advisory team. Now, assuming it would take 30 minutes to perform the dual sacrifices, it possibly could have taken more, the total time required to travel to Obededim's house from Jerusalem would be approximately 1,218 hours. That's the equivalent of 51 days to travel nine kilometers. If you're traveling nine kilometers and you're taking 51 days to do it, you've got to add some more on top because they need to sleep. So if we allow eight hours for sleep and three hours for meals, you can add another 43 days on. That's, that's 94 days to travel nine kilometers. All the while, David is not only sacrificing, but dancing and praising and worship extravagantly. If that doesn't constitute extravagance, I don't think I've ever seen it. You see David's worshipful extravagance also in his giving toward the temple that his son was to build for the Lord. David wasn't allowed to build it. Solomon had to build it. But David prepared materials for it. And the scripture says, out of his own personal resources, David gave huge amounts for the building of the temple. Amounts that would have bankrupted even the most wealthiest people by today's standard. The scripture tells us 3,000 talents of gold. I did some conversions. That's about 112 tons of gold. The other day I did a quick conversion of what that would be in terms of price, given the present price of gold. On Friday, the price of gold was $2,613.42 an ounce. In a ton, there are 32,000 ounces. Okay, that's... $83,629,440 per ton. That's one ton. 
David gave 112 tons. If you want to do the maths, that's 9,366,497,280 that David prepared. And again, if you don't think that's extravagant, our building team awaits you. In addition, David gave 262 tons of silver. I'm not even going to go there in terms of the mathematics. David was extravagant in his commitment to and worship of God. He never forgot that God had taken him from following the sheep and that everything he had amassed was because of God's provision and blessing on his life. So he visualized it coming from God and, uh, and in the first place and as a result had no problem in giving back to God with a liberal uh, act of extravagant worship. David was passionate and enthusiastic in his praise. He was extravagant. And thirdly and finally, David was expressive in his worship. David worshipped with his whole being. He spoke, he sang, he shouted, he strummed, he skipped, you name it, David did it. You know, some people dismiss that kind of worship and say, oh, well, David was, you know, of the Middle Eastern temperament and, and you know how expressive and emotional they can be. And, and of course, we do. You know, if you've seen two Italians on the side of the road talking, their arms are going and you think, shall I call 111? They look as if they're about to have a fight. And when you find out what they're talking about, they're discussing the weather. They do get excited. They do get passionate. But... I don't think that constitutes an excuse for us to be able to count ourselves out of an involvement in worship. That we, we don't have to do that because that was only for them. You can't honestly do that if the scriptures are your guide. We are called to worship God with our whole being, with our regenerated spirit, with our renewed minds, with our revived emotions, with our rededicated body. And I know that when you come to worship God like that, it involves a confrontation with not just our own personalities, but with what our culture dictates and directs. Our culture says, well, you know what? You should be, you should be reverent, which actually in most instances is a synonym for be quiet. It should be dignified. It should have decency and decorum. It should be primarily cerebral. So you can sit and not do anything, but, but it's worship because you're thinking it. Listen, every parent knows thankfulness and thankfulness are not the same thing. When you give your child or your grandchild an ice cream or something, you know, a present, and you hold it out and they take it and they don't say anything, I don't know whether, what you do, but I would always hold it. And I'd be waiting for the word. And when the word was spoken, I'd release it. When the word was not spoken, I'd be holding on to it. And they finally got the picture. and go, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, thank you, Papa. It's all right, you're welcome. If I'm holding it, they take it and I say, what do you say? And they say, I don't say anything, I think it. I say, that's not good enough. I am sorry. Thankfulness and thankfulness are not the same thing. And when we sit like wooden Indians in the pews with our arms crossed saying, well, I'm thinking it, yeah, you know, my worship is cerebral. It's deep because it's in my mind. I want to tell you it's not as deep as you think it is. There is something about the Hebrew way of seeing life that says what we feel inside is expressed through our bodies. That's why it says in the book of Lamentations, I lift up my heart with my hands. When we lift our hands, it's not just a Pentecostal exercise. It is lifting our heart before the Lord and saying, Lord, here it is. All that I am, all that I have, 
every emotion, every, every desire, every dream, all that's contained within my heart, I offer to you as an act of worship. We're called to worship in that way. You say, well, Don, I'm just not that kind of personality. Listen, you don't have a personality test to decide whether you obey the scripture or not. If you want to go and do a personality test, Myers-Briggs or Strength Finders, well, God bless you, they're good. But it has nothing to do with whether you're a worshiper or not. I don't know whether David was a, you know, I don't know what his personality type was. What I do know from the scripture is he was a passionate worshiper. So, well, Don, I prefer, you know, the quieter type of worship. Well, I understand that, but you're going to be in for a shock when you get to heaven. When Isaiah was given an insight into what went on in heaven, the angels were calling to one another and the place was shaken by the sound. In the book of Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, you have one of the most intimate pictures of heavenly worship and I want to tell you it's expressive, it's loud and it goes from the far reaches of the universe to the throne and then back again. I was saying this morning, if you want to know where the original Mexican wave came from, it didn't come from Mexico. It came from Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. As the people around the throne fell down, the creatures, and then the 24 elders, and then the saints round about right out to the universe. And when it got out to the far corners of the universe, the living creatures fell down again. And on and on and on it went. That's dignified. That's decorum. Well, you say, Don, I just, I just find it difficult. Yeah, I know. Most of us did when we began. Most of us were incredibly self-conscious. First time I raised my hands, I closed my eyes so nobody could see me doing it. <laughs> and if you have to do that, do that. But don't let your dignity and concern about your dignity stop you being a worshiper. Because I want to tell you, you can't preserve your dignity and have the smile of deity at the same time. You can't save face and seek his at the same time. David's wife, Michael, prioritized her dignity over her passion. And as a result, the Bible says she was barren. And I want to suggest to you that barrenness is a really high price to pay for your dignity. David was passionate, extravagant, and expressive in his worship. And he was also known as a man after God's own heart. Of all the kings of Israel, it was he that came the closest to fulfilling what God had on his heart for that nation in the sense of its geographical boundaries. God promised the people of Israel a, la a large land. They never went close to fulfilling it. The closest they got was under David's leadership. And at the height of Israel's worship was the greatest extent of the possession of their promises. Those two things are linked. And uh, that's worth going away and thinking about. If I want to be one who possesses all that God has for me, then something about that is linked with your willingness to be a worshipper, to bow humbly before him and to, and to lift your heart. There is something about that that opens up the possibility of promises. So I'd like to suggest to you that David is a prototype for the way that we, New Testament kings and priests, are called to worship. I know that that will be a challenge in terms of our culture, maybe a challenge in terms of your personality. And as I said to, to the group this morning, sometimes for people moving from here to here is a massive step. But I tell you, make it. Start, start to get your body into the worship event. Sing, speak, lift your heart, and lift your heart with your hands. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.